The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Again, a big uh, welcome, especially for folks who are new to the center. We have Kathy and Emil, who are our program hosts today. So if you have any questions about the center, you can connect. Let's see, where's Kathy? Somewhere. Maybe she's out in the lobby. Oh, there she is. And then Emil is right here. You can connect with them afterward if you have any questions about what goes on here. And uh, it's just uh, great to be back. I've been on the road a little bit in March, and um, but I'll be back for a while and then gone at the end of April and most of May, uh, teaching uh, both on the East and West Coasts. But we've been, Shelley and I have been looking at these last few weeks and probably onward for a few weeks, the relationship between what we often call love, the, the spiritual end of the spectrum of love, not attached love or love for a particular thing or a particular person, but that more simple and beautiful generosity of the heart that it isn't about what we love, it's about love itself, right? The connection between love and awareness. And I think it's a really, and the reason we're taking some time, it's it's such a relevant intersection in learning how to be a skillful human being in this very messy and imperfect world. And it really helps us avoid a lot of shadows, a lot of, you know, just kind of traps, both generally in spiritual life, but in particular with Buddhist awareness practices, which can, you know, if people aren't really um, reflecting deeply, um, awareness practice, mindfulness practice can sort of have this bypass of not being connected. Like, oh, it's all, the world's out there, everything's out there, and I'm back here as the observer, as the impersonal witnesser of that great mess out there. And then that, so in case you're not getting it, that's not the way, <laughs> right? But it, it can seem that way at times, so that's why it's a shadow, because it sort of, Sounds like that's what mindfulness or awareness practice is about. It's like living in the world but not being touched by the world. So when we talk about this intersection of love and awareness, you know, the thing about love that I think we all agree upon, when we talk about our actual experience of love, not attached love, but just that generosity to the heart, we'll always talk about it as a, as including the experience of exposure, like a real connection. It always involves including, belonging, embracing, not separating, right? Because that wouldn't be love to have to like hold something at a distance. But, but it's, we're really talking about on the level of understanding, right? So like we could see a rattlesnake, but it doesn't mean we're going to hug it. Right, so it doesn't. Love doesn't look any particular way, like its outer expression. It's really about how awareness is relating, how knowing the knowing mind, the sensitive heart, how it's connecting. Because we can have a real connection, 
even with somebody we see as being dangerous, even somebody that it wouldn't be appropriate to be in relationship with on an external level, right, to be alone in the room with. But we can have a lot of connection like, oh, you know, wouldn't be easy to be that person. I care about that person. I actually wish well for that person. Even our so-called enemies, people who we have to be really careful with or people who maybe are doing things in the world or to us that are really destructive, isn't it possible at times, isn't it skillful like and healing to wish well for them? Whoever you imagine as being sort of the bad person, the evildoer or whatever, why wouldn't we wish for the deepest healing for that person? Why wouldn't that be for everybody's benefit? Right? May your heart open. May you see clearly. May you find your way to real, resonant happiness. Is there anybody you can imagine that you can't feel that for at least a moment? I know we get caught up, you know, when we're really hurt. Part of feeling the pain of, you know, just being burnt, being betrayed, being abused or oppressed, is we want to hit back. I mean, it's just, it really is the natural reaction to, to being overwhelmed by pain is to want to make the other person hurt too or make other people hurt. Sometimes we turn it on ourselves. We're feeling a lot of pain and we blame ourselves so we want to hurt more. I mean, it's really crazy in that way our wired response to pain. If I'm in pain, uh, me or others should be in pain, right? But that's not love. That's the exact opposite, right? That's hate or aversion where we're, we relate to the very real suffering, pain, injustice in the world by getting tight, by causing more suffering. And nobody benefits from that. There's a passage from, I think it's still, even though it's now over 20 years old, this uh, book that Sharon Salzberg wrote. She's one of our senior teachers in this lineage of early Buddhism here in the West, coming out of Theravada Buddhism from Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Laos. And uh, Sharon, many years ago, wrote this book on loving kindness and really about this intersection of the Buddhist teachings on waking up and the central place of love in that path of awakening. And it really changed here in the West, especially how we practice that book. It was really... You know, because in a way we're newbies, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings coming to the West, we're sort of figuring out, like, how does that, how do these practices look here in this Western context in a way that actually works? And so we're still figuring it out, you know, and bringing things in and balancing the practice. And it was a really important balancing to realize the centrality, like there really isn't mindfulness without understanding love, what love is, as an actual happening in our hearts, that actual process of entrusting, of inclusivity, of belonging, of embracing, of basically saying yes to the moment, like even very 
imperfect uh, moments, because it's already that way, this embracing quality still makes sense. Even if we really have to do something quickly as a response to the moment we're living, but still that, oh yeah, it is this way. My child is in danger. It is this way right now. I'm not going to practice denial. I'm not going to bother with hate. I'm going to really let the moment in. I'm going to let it land. I'm going to feel. I'm going to embrace it. Because that's what's going to support a skillful response in this moment. And if we don't understand the place of love, we don't really know how to respond. And just so happens that it's the Sunday closest to the the equinox. And most of you who've been around for a while know that on the solstices, near the solstices and equinoxes on Sunday morning, we do the refuges and precepts this seven-minute recitation. So we'll do that before we end at 11.45 this morning. And so that's Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We do it in this traditional way using the Pali language because it's kind of code for our practice. Buddha, which means to be awake, wakefulness, awakenness. Buddha is able to be intimate with Dharma, which means the way it is. Not the way we think it is. The way it is is always moment by moment by moment. This life, this feeling, this reality of the heart, mind, body, this embodied experience right now, that's dharma. And it's wild. It's wild precisely because it doesn't include our idea about the present moment. Because that's an abstraction. That's also part of the wildness, not the meaning of the concept we have or the idea we have, but that there are our thoughts. And they're also a natural, wild movement. I say I use the word wild because it really, that visceral sense of humility, like when we're actually in a wild place, if you're fortunate enough to get into more wild places from time to time, you notice like the mind is very vivid precisely because we don't know where we are and we don't know what's around us because it's wild, you know? It's so nice. I mean, it's not necessarily nice for the person, but it's so nice to hear about people having encounters with cougars and wolves and, you know, whatever it might be, deer ticks and other <laughs> things because we have, we live such sterile lives often in the cities where we lose it so familiar, it's more predictable precisely because we've ironed everything out. We've gotten rid of the deer ticks and the mosquitoes and the, the this is and that's and all the un- a lot not all of it but a lot of the uncertainty, or at least we can pretend we have, right? So we, you know, this uh, fullness. This uh, I wanted to read this quote from Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness because she really talks about this radical inclusivity. She writes near the beginning of the book where she's introducing this intersection of the Buddhist teachings and love which is really the Buddha knowing Dhamma. That is the intimacy. Being awake, being awake to what? Well, the wildness of the present moment, the messiness, the imperfections. Right? The, the reality, we can't really know it. So the quote is, great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness. Right? There's a pleasure. And it's really important because 
nobody is going to cultivate mindfulness because it means exposure to the wildness and the imperfections. And we prefer our diluted certainty of our fixed views, right? It's really, that's the, that's what the Buddha means by ignorance, is thinking that we know. Because when we have moments of Buddha knowing Dhamma, that great fullness of being, as Sharon, Sharon Salzberg call, calls it, when we have that intimacy, then we lose certainty. We're in the world of Dharma, which is not certain. It's vulnerable. It's exposed. We're not deludedly protecting ourselves with an idea of who we are or what's happening. We're in this very alive space of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And it's in that place where Sangha actually arises. So superficially, we use Sangha as a word for spiritual community. So you'll hear people like at a place like Common Ground saying, the Common Ground Sangha. Or, hey, I went on a retreat and there was such a great feeling of Sangha at that retreat. So people use that word Sangha as spiritual community and that's fine. But it actually means uh, an enlightened, a beautiful, an intimate response, an intimate way of engaging the present moment that can only come out of Buddha knowing Dhamma, like being in the wildness of the present moment, being in an undefended, unarmored place. We have that at times with our pets, with our children, with our lovers, with hopefully some of our communities. And it generally relies, depends on learning how to feel safe in more and more moments of our lives. Because it's not so easy to experience sangha, that sort of enlightened action, that beautiful responsivity, that beautiful engagement, that nimble engagement, creative engagement with the moment when we don't feel safe. It's not so easy. So just finishing the statement from Sharon, great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love to be undivided, right? Because what divides the mind is our thoughts about things. And then the clinging to those thoughts, that separates, that fragments our reality. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, is to love. To pay attention is to love. I really appreciate that there's, a, we don't need a lot more than that statement to do this practice forever really, like from a, being a beginner to being so-called, you know, along the path, somewhere along the path, becoming a wise and loving person. We don't need much more instruction than great fullness of being, right? That's a real visceral, that has an embodied quality, that opening statement, right? Like fullness, it's another way that love is described is as an upwelling. So it's not me trying to be kind or me trying to be compassionate, It's really discovering a natural, not a personal, a natural wellspring. Like if the love just shows up, have you had that experience? Now you might tell yourself a story, oh, I guess I'm a really loving person. But if you really were honest about what just happened, like you see a sick dog or whatever the little moment is that allows for that natural upwelling of your heart, 
when you're really honest with yourself, you didn't, you're not doing the love. It's just upwelling. It's just showing up. And it's the very real expression of love is it just fills up and keeps going. It wants to go out. It doesn't really care who it goes out to. It just wants to move. Right? It's a movement and it's a generous movement. It's not like what can I have and sort of put in my bank account, my love. It's really, it just wants to go out. So really stay on the lookout for that movement, that generous movement of kindness, of gratitude, of appreciation, that movement of forgiveness, and that movement of patience, and of course the movement of tenderness and compassion. Because it, you know, it's really creative or nimble in that sense that it will show up in different ways. To be undivided and unfragmented, right? that just means to be present, to be mindfully aware. To be completely present is to love. To pay attention is to love. And you can flip back and forth. Like when you feel there's a lot of natural movement of love in any moment of your day, then just ask yourself, just as an investigation, like, is this the same as being radically present? And then when you feel really mindful, really present in moments, just ask yourself, is this the same as love? So that you're really exploring for yourself the intersection of love and this wise presence. And so maybe you have a different word for it. Call it you know, intimacy or wisdom, love, or whatever you want to call it. But Because this helps us bring the practice into balance, understanding that it involves both the capacity to include, to be undefended, everything belongs. That's the love side. But the wisdom awareness side is like, uh, it has a cooler feeling to it. Equanimity, right? Like uh, like pre- the, precisely be, uh, in order to include everything, I have to be unafraid of everything. So that's the wisdom side. Like it's just stuff happening. It's just the movement of nature. And that allows me to love. And that's really a powerful insight that the Buddha um, taught that I think in some ways is unique in human history about how real love depends on equanimity. Because, you know, in the West, a lot of times we associate love with passion or with attachment. You know, I love you, and so that's why I'm not going to let this happen. As opposed to, I love you, I don't want you to suffer, I'm going to do whatever I can to prevent suffering, but if bad things happen to you, I'm still going to love you. And I know I don't hold all the cards. It's kind of like with some of the great problems we face, like racism or environmental destruction or economic injustice. Like is our engagement, is our willingness to show up and be fierce and to be alive and to be loving and to be compassionate, is that dependent on the problem going away? Maybe our engagement will make it just a little less bad or maybe going to hell a little slower, right? But maybe that's okay. I mean, maybe like that's all we get. I'm not, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm trying to point out that 
love doesn't put any put anything anything it's like for its own sake so i'm i'm engaging i'm showing up i'm responding knowing that i don't hold all the cards so my engagement my wholehearted engagement doesn't depend on things turning out any way doesn't mean that i don't have the best interest of everyone in mind it just means that i'm going to keep showing up no matter how this thing plays out and that's really interesting i feel that way in my relationship with my spouse because those of you who are um, we've been together for 27 years now and and uh you know it's like it's an intense thing to be aware in an intimate relationship it's an intense ride a beautiful ride a difficult ride and there's there's something about knowing that i don't know how this thing's going to play out right you have to be you have to ha- sort of have a relationship where it's okay to name that it's always true right how things are going to play out is always uncertain is anybody certain how their relationships are going to turn out? <laughs> That's called delusion. <laughs> right? That's what I mean by fixed view. Like there's a compelling idea that the mind likes and so it grasps the idea as if it's true. But when we're more honest, more present, we realize, yeah, I don't hold all the cards to anything. How the body's going to play itself out, how the relationship's going to play itself, itself out, how the world's going to play itself out. All we get is Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We get the only rights as a human being we have is how we relate to the present moment. We really don't get any more rights as a human being. We have the right to be Buddha knowing Dhamma, to be wisely awake and intimate with the way it actually is here in this body, in this world, in this heart, in this mind, with this mind. And because of that intimacy, to have these moments of creative responsivity, this beautiful engagement. That's all we get, moment by moment. We don't get certainty about how anything's going to play out. There's way too much in motion, way too many causes and conditions in play, right? We, We can cling to ideas, like we can have a scenario that we think about and we hope it's true. But that really gets in the way of being intimate with the reality of uncertainty, the wildness of the present moment. And then we lose the capacity to be sangha, this creative engagement, this loving, wise, compassionate engagement that can only come out of intimacy. Like how else would we know how to show up and say what we're going to say or do what we're going to do or restrain ourselves from doing what we might otherwise do or might otherwise say? unless we're really intimate. Without intimacy, we lose skillfulness. That's another really important thing that the Buddha taught of replacing the idea of morality, like what I look like when I'm skillful. That's an idea that we cling to. And it, you know, we all do that to some degree, right? Okay, I'm going to be interacting with my spouse or I'm going to be interacting in this difficult meeting and I want to be skillful and I think this is what that looks like. And we come in in a somewhat tight way, clinging to the idea of what we think skillfulness will look like in this situation. But it might be a lot more skillful, like allowing us to be more skillful, if we honestly admit, like, I don't know how to be in relationship with my partner. 
I don't know how to show up to this difficult meeting skillfully, but I do know it will help to be intimate, to really feel what I'm feeling, to really sense what I'm sensing, to really do my best to be unafraid, to be exposed, to be vulnerable, to be right in the middle, because that will allow a more nimble, creative response moment by moment by moment to refrain from saying something when that seems apparently to be skillful, to speak truth to power when that seems to be the appropriate response, moment by moment. But it means, this is why it's so scary, we have to let go of our imagined certainty of like what we should do. And we have to learn how to be present and to be alive and to be in love in this in these ways. So that brings us to this recitation we do once a quarter around the equinoxes like we had a few days ago, the beginning of spring and around the solstices. So we'll do it again at the end of June or early July. And we do two things. We take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, wakefulness, being intimate with the way it is, that's Dharma, and being able to express Sangha. And then we'll do the five precepts. And this is this commitment to non-harming. Good, and you'll notice that some of us do this gesture with our hands. It's called Anjali, but I did it for a long time as a youth, as a Catholic, right? And it just, it's a kind of archetypal gesture that sort of brings up the feeling of gratitude and devotion. Some of you have that kind of energy just in your personality, so it's really good to tap into it because it's a powerful emotional force. So use it if you want but uh, don't do it because you think you should. Good, and the first thing we do, you see at the beginning, there after the description paragraph, is the Namo Tassa. We'll do that chant three times, and it's just acknowledging the Buddha as a human being who set these teachings in motion, and just gratitude for our teacher and teachers down the line. Then we repeat the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, three times. So when you see dutiampi in the second stanza, that just means for the second time. And when you see tatiampi in the third stanza, that just means for the third time. Then we'll read the English and reflect on these three refuges. Then we'll do the five precepts. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Sangang saranang gachami, Dutiampi buddhang saranang gachami, Dutiampi dhammang saranang gachami, Dutiampi sangang saranang Gachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami 
Tatiampi damang saranang gachami Tatiampi sangang saranang gachami I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from clinging. So just reflecting on this wakeful quality, this loving and wakeful quality in the heart. And that wakefulness meets dharma, so we take refuge in the second. I take refuge in the dharma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. So just take a few seconds and reflect on being intimate with the way things are. Undependent. And now the third. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. So we're reflecting on moments we see people who are Buddha knowing Dhamma, like really intimate, and how their actions in the world, their way of showing up is really beautiful. And remembering we're that person sometimes, Buddha knowing Dhamma, and our actions are quite awe-inspiring, even to ourselves. Let's do the five precepts now. So we'll do the Pali, because it's traditional. Then we'll read the English. And then we'll listen to someone in the community read some reflections. Thich Nhat Hanh, some of you know, he's one of the the great teachers of the last um, half-century here in the West. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, but he got kicked out of Vietnam during the Vietnam War because he was a peace activist. And he's been, for our good sake, uh, here in the West most of the time since then, teaching. And he's quite old now, and he's gone back to Vietnam. He's actually in Vietnam to die, um, but he's still ticking. Um, But anyway, these are some comments he wrote a while back about each of these five precepts. So let's start with the first one. Panati pata where amini sikapadang samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Again, just reflect on what non-harming might look like specifically in your own life. Good, and we'll do the second then. Adinadana where amani sikapadang samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Good. 
Again, just reflecting what that might look like in our own lives. Now the third. Kame su michachara where amani sikapadang samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Or just reflecting what that might look like in our lives. And uh, just so you know, on at one o'clock today, uh, people who identify as men or with masculinity, we're going to have a conversation about this third precept. Um, We've been having it, having one every six months. Everyone's welcome, 1 to 3.30. It's just really a lot of circle work where we just reflect as men, as people who identify with masculinity around these issues of sexual misconduct and intimacy, yeah, and what that looks like in our lives and what we've learned. So let's do the fourth now. Musawada ver amini sikapadang samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from speech. This is a big one, just how we use speech, so reflecting for a few seconds. How easy it is to use it as a weapon, to manipulate. And now the fifth. Sura Maria Majapamaratana where Amani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by the 
Get a moment to reflect. And then we end with this short statement here. Ida me silang magafalanyanasa pachayo hotu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And then this last paragraph, taking refuge, understanding the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefit without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merits, parent, teachers, family, friends, all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. So that's what we do once a quarter. But some people do this quite regularly at home or with friends, and you can shorten it or just do it in a more informal way. But it's a real like a reset for the heart to commit to the practice, which is the Buddha Dhamma Sangha thing we did at the beginning, the refuges, and then to commit to a life of integrity, which is the five precepts. Really, they're just different expressions of the commitment not to harm others, not to harm oneself or others. And the children will be here probably in just a minute, but we do have time if there's a comment or one question or so about the talk and about the refuges and precepts that you'd like to share with the group or a question to bring up. Anything come to mind before the kids come in? You know, the chanting becomes difficult for me because I'm not used to the patterns and the words. And um, I'm, and so I kind of mumble. And I know growing up, my brother Chip used to go crazy in church because I'd mumble through Ave Maria. <laughs> Until I got to Ave Maria, then that came out in a big class. So anyway, what do I do about that? Yeah, I stop and see one of the longtime people. Patrice is here, you know, some of the teachers and longtime community members. They know the Pali well because it's hard in the group context to hear it clearly enough. You can also get it online, but you know, the Thai chant the Pali a little different than the Burmese. So there's a lot of different, I mean, they're close, but they're still different enough that it's, and then the rhythm of it. But yeah, just stop by one of the sort of teachers at Comgon and you'll hear how we do it here, which is mostly in the Thai forest sort of way of doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people will repeat it. One person will say it and then everyone says it together but it sort of lengthens it out. And for people who don't like these sort of ritualistic things, 
It just pushes their buttons. So this is our compromise, just to kind of go for it. I'm not saying it's a good compromise, but this is the compromise we've made. <laughs> yeah, but feel free to connect anytime, and I'll walk you through, or Patrice, I'm sure, would be willing, and others. Yeah. Anything else before the kids come in? Yeah. I mean, in a way, Thich Nhat Hanh was the great model of engaged Buddhism from the very beginning because, you know, he came out of this terrible uh, war where he sort of came of age as a young monk. And then all that uh, uh, process of people leaving Vietnam and going to the camps in Thailand. And so he, he really sort of modeled how to be peaceful and engaged at the same time. And we're really indebted to that. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Joy Spring. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.